I'm Kier. I'm Haley. And I'm Jay from Gallifrey Public Radio. A podcast member of the Gunna Geek Network. Just like the one you're listening to right now. The opinions expressed are those of each individual. Check out all the other podcasts at GunnaGeekNetwork.com. And get ready, because geekiness begins in three, two, one. Welcome to Head in the Cloud. I'm your host, John Svazik. This is episode 14 for 2017. In today's episode, we're going to take a look at disaster recovery and how that actually works in the cloud. So it's going to be important to note that we are not talking about a business continuity plan. Uh, business continuity is a much bigger topic and uh, it essentially covers a lot more than just the technical uh, restoration of service, which is more what the disaster recovery is uh, going to cover. So with that, what is disaster recovery? The, there's no official definition in terms of like an ISO standard. So like ISO 27,013, uh, 27,001, 27,002. There's no standard definition for disaster recovery, uh, but it's generally understood to mean the ability to recover uh, IT infrastructure in case of a disruption. And that infrastructure can either be on site or it can be at a uh, cloud provider. Um, but the point is that it is something that's used to uh, provide service. So the basically it is a disaster recovery plan is a plan to get your systems back up and running if something has happened to them that causes them to go down or stop responding. If we look at the CIA triad of confidentiality, integrity, and availability, we're focusing on the A of that triad, which is availability. So obviously the other half of this is is what constitutes a disaster. So if we, what, what is a disaster? Uh, so disasters can come in many forms. They can be natural disasters. They can be man-made disasters. Uh, natural disaster would be something like flooding, uh, tornadoes, earthquakes, etc. cetera. Uh, man-made disasters can be something like blackouts, fires, or denial of service attacks. And when I say fires, I mean like arson, not fires that are started from, from lightning, for example, or forest fires that are beyond control. Um, and de denial of service attacks, a lot of people don't think of them as being a disaster, but uh, they are because they will affect your ability to respond to your customers. Uh, you are now denying uh, availability of your systems to, or something is denying availability of your systems to your customers. So that would be potentially a form of disaster. So who can define that you are in a disaster scenario? Who can make that decision? This has to actually come from senior management. As a security professional, you can't say, we're in a disaster. I'm going to just start doing the disaster recovery. That's not your call. Uh, it's usually at a C level. 
It could be the CEO, it could be the CIO. Uh, it really depends on your organization, but it does have to be someone in senior management. It could be a VP as well, but someone who is responsible for the systems has to make the call to say, we're in a disaster situation now, people. I need someone or I need the team to execute the disaster recovery plan. So what we're going to do in today's episode is we're going to talk about the different approaches that you can have for disaster recovery, specifically within the cloud. There's a lot of overlap with uh, traditional data center, uh, but some of the implementation details are slightly different. What I want to make clear, however, is that when we talk about disaster recovery, this is just scratching the surface. There is a lot more uh, detail to disaster recovery than we can cover in a single episode. Not to mention it's different depending on your organization. Everyone has different needs and everyone has different you know, requirements for disaster recovery. There are some key points that are common across everything, and that's kind of what we're going to be touching on today. But I don't want anyone to have the feeling that, okay, cool, John's talked about disaster recovery on this episode. I know exactly what I'm going to do now. I'm going to go and just just do exactly as as was stated, and, and I should be good, right? Well, no, you're not. Every everything's different. So before we get into the details, let's talk a little bit about what is uh, what are some of the advantages of uh, disaster recovery when you're running in a cloud-based uh, scenario or in a cloud-based environment, I should say, uh, rather than a traditional data center environment or where you have everything in, in-house. The first difference is capital expenditure, CapEx. It's essentially, for most intensive purposes, non-existent unless you want it to be. And the reason for that is there's no need for you to have uh, machines just sitting there. You don't have to buy, you don't have this capital expenditure, this upfront cost of purchasing disaster recovery machines ahead of time. You can, and we're going to get into that in a bit when we start taking a look at the different approaches to uh, disaster recovery. But for the most part, there's no need to actually have additional machines that you have to purchase uh, ahead of time in order to prepare for a disaster and store them somewhere. And obviously, as your machines uh, and then your needs grow, you might have to purchase new machines that are more powerful. So the power of the cloud, as we know, is being able to scale infrastructure as you need it. And so that applies to disaster recovery as well. So again, this, this CapEx uh, costs, CapEx costs are much, much lower. OpEx, operational expenditure, that is uh, something that is still going to happen you're still going to have that as as a factor. You're still going to have uh, potentially things running that you'll need to uh, to pay for. And again, this will depend on the the type of uh, disaster recovery plan you want to have implemented. So I keep talking about these types. What do I mean? Well, there's some standard terms when you start looking at disaster recovery. There's uh, what you can uh, usually disaster recovery is 
the the basics of the plan is to have uh, a system that you can fall back on in case of disaster. And how that system is set up usually falls into one of three categories. You can have a cold standby, and a cold standby is your disaster recovery site has nothing running. It is literally empty. There's nothing there. In traditional data center, you may still have the machines in boxes. Um, maybe your IT staff has set them up, uh, uh, did a base image for them, but they're not running. They're literally cold. Um, so it, it depends, again, how uh, proficient your IT is. Uh, but I've known of some companies where they've literally just left them in the box waiting for a disaster and they will not touch them until it's time. And the reason for that is uh, as their needs grow, they may have contracts where they can return unused equipment, unused, unopened equipment uh, to save on some of that CapEx that we talked about before. Other times they just choose to sell them as is. And if they've never been touched, there's no need to do uh, things like data wipes and uh, uh, just ensuring complete data destruction uh, so that nothing sensitive leaves the organization uh, when they try to resell the equipment. So in a cloud environment, a, cl a cold standby can literally just be uh, a system or a set of images that you have for your environment that are just sitting on the sidelines. They're not running. Uh, you can bring them up when you need them. They may not, you may not have an image at all. You may rely on your DevOps tools to do all the provisioning for you uh, and we can go from there. So we're gonna get into that in more detail uh, in a bit. Uh, but let's take a look at what's another, what are, what's sort of the, the next level uh, for disaster recovery. And that is the warm standby. So from cold, you move up a bit and you go into warm standby. So this is where some of your services or some of your systems are actually running all the time. They're running in parallel to your primary uh, data center or your primary site. Um, usually a warm standby uh, has a database, usually like a read replica or something that's running, but your application servers, web servers, load balancers and all that, that's not running yet. It's quite possible that your, uh, even your database servers uh, for your replicas are smaller. They can't necessarily handle load right away. But the point is you have something running there and you're essentially trying to minimize data loss. So if data is important to you and you don't want to, to lose a bunch of uh, information, you might have a, a standby going on. So if there is a disaster, you're losing a minimal amount of, of uh, data to, uh, depending on the uh, what transactions were running at the time. And moving up in the world again, going from cold to warm up to hot, a hot standby is essentially a mirror image of what you have in your production environment, in your primary data center, in your primary um, availability zone, your primary region, your primary uh, location, whatever it is. So 
in the cloud, again, this is literally, I'm running the exact same thing. There's a lot more overhead with this and we'll cover that uh, as we, as we move on. So we can think of these different types of disaster recovery plans as being temperatures, right? We go from cold to warm to hot. So as the temperature of these plans rises, so does your operational expense, your OPEX. So the costs, obviously, if it's a cold standby, nothing's running. So you, you have no cost there at all, save for whatever um, costs are associated with storage. So if you're storing a, a base image, for example, a golden image for your systems, you might, depending on your cloud provider, be charged for those base images. And so you'll be paying for that, but it's minimal. We're talking pennies per month. So I don't think that's uh, for all intents and purposes. If it's, it's zero cost. Uh, the warm standby, now you have some systems running. They may not be full-powered machines. You definitely don't have everything running. So you have some additional costs. You have some data transfer costs, uh, possibly. But again, for the most part, you're not paying uh, a huge amount. And then, of course, you go to the hottest setting, the, the hottest plan, the hot standby. You're basically doubling your costs. You have everything literally just waiting for something to happen. So take whatever you normally spend on your primary uh, location and double it because that's what's going to end up happening. And again, depending on the cloud provider, maybe your disaster recovery region is uh, more expensive to run systems in. I know Amazon has different pricing. I think the uh, Google and Azure are more or less the same unless you're going... Um, really far apart, like maybe going from Europe to the United States or something like that. They might have slightly different pricing. I'm not sure. Uh, I know that if you have systems in Canada, that uh, Canadian-based data centers usually have uh, associated costs that are slightly higher, uh, usually about a penny or so per hour more. And that's because of all the lovely taxes we have up here in Canada. But yeah, we have better health care than most. So uh, it's it's all good. Um, anyway, sorry about that. <laughs> I couldn't help it. Uh, we're not going to we're not going to get into that. That was that was a low blow. I apologize, uh, especially to our American listeners. So. What can we do when we're talking about disaster recovery in the cloud? What can we do? Um, obviously, the costs, uh, the cost is a factor. And that's something that, again, senior management has to sign off on. Uh, you need to basically approach them and say, look, here, here's the different options that we have. We can do a cold, we can do a warm, and we can do a hot. There's costs associated with each. We increase the uh, redundancy. Uh, the hotter we go, the faster we can recover, but the higher the costs will be. Um, we can potentially, um, you know, save money by going to a cold solution, but it's going to take X number of minutes or hours of downtime uh, before we'll be back up and running. And how does that translate into lost revenue? And that has to be, again, decided. All you can do is provide all the facts. Let senior management make that decision. And then once they have made the decision, now you can start looking at um, 
a few different methods for performing disaster recovery in the, in the cloud. How can you set these things up? So regardless of the temperature, you've got a couple of options. So we're going to actually go through each of these. And specifically, what we're going to look at is in the cloud, we can have increased redundancy within the same data center. We can have a cold, warm, or hot standby with the same cloud provider, or we can have a cold, warm, or hot standby in another data center with a different cloud provider. Um, so we're going to go through each of these uh, in turn and then kind of dive into the details for, for, for those. So the first one, this increased redundancy uh, within the same data center, this really isn't a disaster recovery strategy, but some people often think that it is. They think, you know what, if I have to worry about a machine going down, no problem. I can just spin up another machine uh, in the same data center. I don't even have to worry about it. Uh, that machine goes bad. Cool. Let me spin up another one. Um, I can even automate this. I can set up some auto scaling groups to say if I have sick machines and it falls below a certain threshold, just spin up some new ones. Do it for me automatically, Google or Amazon or Azure. You know, just do it. Do what you do best. I'm going to tell you a system that I want to have, uh, or sorry, an image that I want you to spin up these new systems on. And I want you to just make sure I'm always running this number. But the point is, you're still in the same geographic data center. You're still in the same location. It's not a disaster recovery, right? This is this is a a infrastructure, a load uh, planning system. This is this is or not load planning system, but a, but a load plan. This is. You know, I want to increase my availability within that data center. I want to be able to scale with demand, right? That's fine. And that is definitely something you want to do, but that's not a disaster recovery plan because what happens when that data center goes down? And if you think that can't happen, you haven't been on a cloud provider long enough, right? You can take a look at historically how what has happened with Amazon because every time Amazon has an outage, it makes uh, it makes the news. Amazon seems to uh, to range. I, I would say maybe once every three years or so, uh, they have a pretty maybe even once every two years they have a significant outage that can uh, significantly affect people. Uh, and it's usually in their main data center, which is U.S. East 1, which is in Virginia. Sometimes it's the data center itself. Um, sometimes it's something. The most recent example would be uh, 2017, early 2017. There was an issue with uh, S3 going down, and that was a human error. Right? You guys can read that. I'll see if I can find an article uh, explaining exactly what happened. It'll post that in the show notes as well. But the, the gist of it is increasing redundancy is, is great for scaling to demand, but it's not a disaster recovery plan. If you're going to have a disaster recovery plan, you literally have to, uh, anticipate the machine or sorry, the data center where your, your systems are located no longer exists. It has to be uh, recoverable in a geographically different location. Now, 
I'll just touch on this very, very briefly. Be careful where you put your data. Okay. If you have data, uh, if your primary data centers in the U S and you suddenly want to move your disaster recovery over to Europe or even up to Canada, um, you may be in violation of your contracts, depending on, on what your customers have agreed to. A lot of people are touchy and this is very, very, very true. If you have your primary data center somewhere in Europe and you want to move it outside of Europe, um, even in the case of a disaster. So keep in mind the geographic regions where your primaries are and see if you can at least do disaster recovery within that, that geographic location within that, that continent and kind of control it that way. Try not to switch continents, uh, for your, your backup regions, because that can lead you into other legal, uh, hot water for, um, for example. So, you know, keep that, keep that in mind. So this idea, but anyway, going back to the, the idea of increased redundancy within the same data center, it's not a disaster recovery plan. I include it because some people, uh, confuse it that it possibly is, but sadly it is not. So that's essentially the tap is off. You're not even running cold standbys or anything at that point. If we're going to the temperature thing, there's nothing to measure. You're not really doing anything. So turning the tap on a bit and we're running cold. So a cold standby in another geographic region is, is kind of, that's your baseline. So the thing to keep in mind is this will only work if you have everything you need in the other region. You cannot have any dependencies on your primary region. So this is, again, a lot of people will think, well, I've got database backups, for example, in my primary region. Surely I'll be able to just select them and copy them over to my DR region when I need them. No, your primary region no longer exists. You no longer have any uh, ability to connect or retrieve or do much of anything with that region. So you need to make sure it may not be running, but you need to make sure that everything you could possibly need is in your disaster recovery region. Even if it's just cold, literally cold standby, nothing has been spun up from it, but you need your, your virtual machine images. You'll need some sort of database backup or snapshot, uh, for any databases that you have. Um, if you're storing data on, uh, any sort of external, uh, drive, for example, be it a block storage system or an object store or whatever it happens to be, you need to make sure that those, uh, images or snapshots or anything where you're storing additional data that's outside of a database is also available in your disaster recovery uh, region, even in a cold standby. So again, you need to constantly throughout any type of, of uh, plan for disaster recovery, you need to make the assumption that the primary data center no longer exists. So how are you going to handle it? What do you need? How is it going to work? And, you know, keep that in mind as you're doing the planning and it will make your life a lot easier. Uh, it's a little more painful. You might have to come up with a few more solutions. And again, this is where it varies. Different solutions, different providers, different, different everything. Um, every person, every company is different. So try to figure out what makes sense for you. 
and again try to keep an inventory of what you have running this was this is just good practice anyway if you have a an inventory of the machines that you're running the types of machines you're running what each machine does um, all the security settings the routing settings the uh, the NAT settings the gateways you know all your your subnet infrastructure your network infrastructure as well as the application infrastructure the data infrastructure the sizing on these machines keep a complete inventory of everything if you have that it'll make it a lot easier when you're doing your disaster recovery planning as well because again you can see exactly what you need and make sure your disaster recovery system uh, or region is adequately uh, prepared and automate as much as you can okay use tools that you have look at tools that can do infrastructure as code terraform is great for this and i will constantly be a fan of terraform simply because it is multi-cloud provider um, configurable i guess is the word i'm looking for anyway the point is terraform works with everybody there are um, the modules for Azure, there are modules for Google Cloud, there are modules for Amazon, there's modules for pretty much every major cloud provider that you can imagine, and a bunch of smaller ones as well. So the whole infrastructure as code piece, this is the actual machines. This isn't necessarily the fine-tuning, and we've gone through this before in a previous episode on uh, DevOps tools. But when it comes to the big heavy lifting, I love to think of Terraform as being the macro engine, so to speak, and smaller tools like the uh, Chef and Puppet as being the micro tools to do the fine tuning. So using, again, using Terraform, I personally find it easier to use than some alternatives like uh, CloudFormation, uh, not to mention the fact that it is uh, cross-provider compatible. So you can you can go to Google and you can go to uh, Microsoft uh, and you can go to Amazon with very minimal uh, change. There is change, obviously, but at least you can reuse your stuff versus starting over from scratch because well, obviously something like CloudFormation only works in Amazon. And uh, yeah, and then of course, the most important thing you need to do is test. Test, 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 test. For love of God, test everything. Uh, test it annually. Okay, make sure at least once a year you guys are testing uh, that your disaster recovery plan works and treat it like an actual downtime situation if you can, if you can afford it. Go up to as far as you can, maybe just before cutting over your customers. Maybe you have a test uh, customer that you can use to actually do the full end to end um, and only recover that individual test customer but just do it to make sure that the steps actually work um, nothing is going to be foolproof there's always going to be something that'll go wrong but the more you know ahead of time that something is working you know the better for you okay and then again moving up let's look at uh, a warm standby and the warm standby in another region again 
uh, we're kind of sticking with the same cloud provider. We haven't gone to what happens if I want to switch cloud providers uh, piece yet, um, but we'll get to that uh, shortly. So again, we're going to do the warm standby. We're at the same cloud provider, just a different geographic region. You know, now we're getting better because now we're going to be looking at, okay, what are some of the key systems that I want to have and I want to minimize data loss on? So something along the lines of um, like a read replica. Again, the, the database that you're replicating, maybe the read replica um, is underpowered. It has enough power to keep up with the replication. And again, this will depend on the database engine that you're using. Maybe you don't have a database engine. Maybe the only thing you care about is um, data that's stored on some sort of block storage device or object store device. Um, but again, you want to keep those replicated in some fashion in a disaster recovery region so that if the primary goes down, you still have that data, right? So that's, that's your warm standby. And again, the same rules apply that we had with the cold standby. You want to do testing. You want to make use of your DevOps tools. Um, okay, maybe some of your infrastructure is up and running, but others is not. So again, the Terraform and the cloud and Puppet and Ansible and SaltStack and you know whatever other DevOps tools you might be using, uh, Bash scripts or PowerShell scripts or whatever else, to do that fine tuning, you still want to have as much of this automated as you can. And again, automation is great. Having these tools, when something is happening and people's hair is on fire and they're running around, um, you're going to miss a lot of stuff. You're going to miss a lot of the small stuff, the big stuff you'll hit, the small things that you'll forget uh, that'll end up causing you a massive amount of delay because you're trying to figure out why is this not working a lot of that can be handled through these uh, DevOps tools and these automation tools to both bring up your infrastructure and fine tune it and do that fine uh, tuning configuration, right? So do as much as you can to automate and that will definitely save you uh, uh, when the time comes. So hot standby in another region. This one is obviously the most expensive, like we talked about, still in the same cloud system, but now we're not only are we doing read replicas, um, that read replica may itself be running on beefier hardware uh, to match what you have in your primary data center in your primary region. And you also have all your systems up and running. They're not doing anything. They should, for the most part, be running idle, save for, you know, it's the standard background tasks that are running, but they're essentially sitting idle, just waiting. Now, the important thing with a hot standby is you need to have everything, not just your servers, but your load balancers. You're going to need to have all your firewalls configured the same way. Um, you uh, any sort of CDN, if you're if you're running a SaaS that's web-based, and maybe you've got a CDN provider, uh, it also needs to be configured and basically up and running and waiting to do that that cutover. Um, now you may have, um, well, the CDN is kind of tricky because again, you can't necessarily 
change DNS settings on the fly. Um, if you're running everything within, like Amazon does this really well, and I'm sure that Google and Azure have it as well, and I apologize for not knowing this, but in the case of Amazon, if you use something like Route 53 for your DNS providing, uh, you can actually just do cutovers and you say, okay, look, I'm going to try to go to these sets of load balancers. If they don't work or if for whatever reason that fails, switch over to this load balancer instead and just make use of that guy uh, instead. If you're using uh, CloudFront, it gets a little trickier, uh, but you can still do something along those lines of of doing, a, doing an automatic cutover in case of uh, of downtime. So read the documentation for sure, regardless of which cloud provider you're doing. But this is uh, this is where it gets uh, it gets interesting. And again, keep in mind that you want to uh, have everything replicated, right? Oftentimes, if you have some sort of external storage, like for example, S3 for Amazon, a lot of people got caught off guard. There was an S3 outage, like I said earlier, in early 2017. A lot of people got caught off guard because they thought, oh, hey, great. S3's got 11 nines of, of uh, durability. That's durability. That's not uptime. Uh, uptime, I think, is only five nines. And not only that, you can't access S3 objects from another region if the primary region where they're stored is down. And that's literally what happened. So a lot of people were caught off guard and their sites went down because they couldn't access their data. You can replicate these things. Uh, and again, it doesn't have to be S3. Maybe you have some sort of external storage system that uh, that you're running. So look for some sort of syncing process between your primary and your, and your uh, disaster recovery data centers, uh, regardless of what cloud provider you're using. You know, different providers may have provide different tools to let you do this. But if you're going to be doing a hot standby, you need everything, quite literally everything. And if there's something that goes down, you know, hot standbys are all about getting up and running as fast as you can. Like you should be looking at minutes, maybe seconds, uh, if you're talking about a hot standby. Um, and But again, this will depend on your product offering and depends on your infrastructure needs. So now we get into, so we've talked about, you know, essentially auto-scaling, uh, which isn't a disaster recovery strategy at all cold, warm, and hot standbys, but we've talked about them all within an individual region. Sorry, an individual cloud provider. So we're essentially sticking with Azure, and we're just going to go from one place to another, or we're sticking with Google Cloud, and we're going from, again, one data center to another. We're going with Amazon, and we're going from one region to another, uh, but we're still within that same cloud provider's infrastructure. There are serious advantages with that because obviously it's it's easy, um, it's well-worn territory, it's places that we know what we're doing, and it's, you know, that's fine. But what happens if the entire cloud infrastructure goes down? You know, it's never happened, but just because it's never happened doesn't mean it won't. 
Uh, is the likelihood of it happening, you know, high? No, absolutely not. The whole reason cloud is so popular is because it has that redundancy. It's because it is nigh impossible to take the whole thing down, but it doesn't necessarily have to be due to that. You know, if you're talking about the big cloud providers, sure, that's not likely to happen. What if it's a small cloud provider? It's still not likely to happen. But if they go insolvent, if they go bankrupt, if they get acquired, usually that doesn't happen overnight. Uh, and you have some sense of, um, you know, warning that something's going to happen. Uh, but other things can happen something outside of a natural disaster and something more man-made i'll give you an example okay walmart in 2017 some of you already know what i'm talking about in 2017 had started to go around to its various SaaS providers so these are companies that were selling into walmart and walmart said if you're running on amazon we don't want you to be running on Amazon. You need to move off of Amazon's infrastructure and go somewhere else because Amazon's a competitor of ours. And I'm paraphrasing all of this, of course, but essentially Amazon's a competitor of ours and we don't trust our data on their infrastructure. Even though the Amazon Web Services, which is the division that handles all the cloud, is separate from Amazon Retail. And they, they don't mix between the two, but they're still under the same Amazon parents. And, you know, that's, that's Walmart's right. Now, Walmart's a big company. And oftentimes, if you have them as a client, you're going to want to keep them happy just for the name recognition and probably for the revenue as well. So there's no reason for you to worry about, and does this constitute a disaster? No, I think for some executives, absolutely it does. Uh, is it a technical disaster that needs to be handled within an hour? No, but it is something that could potentially come up. Um, and again, if you have a smaller cloud provider as your, as your host, then you know, the likelihood of them going under it might be quite high or much higher. And maybe you've got plans for moving over to another uh, cloud provider anyway, but you're not sure when it's going to happen. Well, there are some companies that will take the extreme approach to disaster recovery and say, we need to fail over completely to not just another region or another geographic location, but a new provider altogether. And maybe it's political fallout, maybe it's business-based, maybe it's contractual, something along those lines. So this is where, you know, there's no easy options here. This is going to be a one-off for every single one of you that decides to go down this, this road. Um, if you're going to do this, Again, big things to look at, automate what you can. If you can automate your base systems, if you can at least get the same operating system in the new cloud provider and you can, you already have scripts and everything else to configure them, um, then that will make your life a lot easier. It's when you start buying into the, the 
pass uh, items that these cloud providers offer. So platform as a service. So things like managed uh, databases and load balancers and even some of the firewall rules that that come into play and the the networking the the entire network infrastructure be it uh private networking um all sorts of routing tables and so on that that's where things can get a lot hairier so this is something you almost want to have a discussion before you deploy or you know, keep in the back of your minds when you're building out your your offerings in the cloud. What if we decide to switch to a different provider? If you're a hybrid, it's the same thing. Even in a hybrid cloud solution, maybe you've got a you know a VPN gateway between your traditional data center and the cloud. How is that going to work when you switch? You still have some infrastructure in the cloud. Um, does the other cloud provider support the same VPN gateway that you have? And, you know, what does it look like? And what are the, what's the feature parity? Um, there is, uh, there's definitely ways to look for parity and pretty much every cloud provider will tell you that they can offer exactly the same as any other cloud provider. So again, just, just do your research and try to figure out, I'll give a couple of, uh, uh, links in the show notes for some um, comparisons between Google and Amazon and Azure uh, that I've that I've stumbled across. So uh, that for those who are interested, that can that can help. And again, test. Okay, test, 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 test. That's going to be the most important thing that you can do. Test everything. And if you don't think that you need to test. I'm going to say one word, GitLab. For those who remember GitLab, January 2017, they had an outage, and it was a massive outage, and they handled it in a rather unique way. I don't necessarily agree with the way they handled it, but whatever, to each their own. They decided to go with a, a live stream, but the fallout is actually really interesting to read the fallout for GitLab, and I'll provide a link to their post uh post analysis uh in the show notes as well they had like six or seven different forms of backup for their database none of them worked none of them worked because they were never tested and that's really you know mind-boggling to me you have so many backup solutions first of all why do you have so many backup solutions and secondly, why didn't anyone ever feel the need to test one of them? I mean, this is insane. Like, obviously, if you decided that you needed something more, well, you must have found a flaw in one of the other ones. But if you had a flaw in one of the other ones, that must have meant that you tried it, right? Because otherwise, how would you know? Um, so anyway, it was a rather interesting scenario and a situation. And it's a great example of why you need to test. So anyway, with that, uh, thanks all for, for listening. We're just going to wrap it up. So like I said, this is, this is just scratching the surface for disaster recovery, but hopefully it's, it's enough to get, to get discussions going 
and to start thinking about, okay, what does it, what does it mean for disaster recovery for my organization? Um, what are some of the things that we need to think about and how can we, how can we deal with it? I mean, the biggest thing is going to be deciding, you know, what level do you want to go with? Do you want to go with uh, cold, warm, or hot? And realizing that an auto scaling solution is not a disaster recovery plan. So if I stopped even one person from doing that, then all the better. Um, and hopefully you guys are looking at uh, these automation tools. Again, if you want to go to cloud, a lot of cloud is is related around flexibility and being able to to kind of move and, and uh, make changes and updates and everything else as you need it. You know, containers, for example, Docker is becoming very, very, very popular, uh, especially amongst startups because, again, this portability and this this whole thing so you know that's definitely another option um over and above uh just the the terraforms and the chefs and puppets uh and whatnot like docker's on the list so i think in a future episode we'll cover docker a bit more as well so definitely stay tuned for that but anyway thanks everyone um yeah disaster recovery at a fifty thousand foot view um, hopefully you found it enjoyable. Hopefully you found it interesting. Hopefully you found something that was worth your while. Uh, and then as for the podcast, how can people reach out and get in touch with me? Uh, lots of different ways. Uh, you can, the, the main website is myheadinthe.cloud. You can find me on Twitter. That's probably the easiest way to get in touch with me. Just search for John's not here. We have a Facebook fan page, um, which is on facebook.com slash my head in the cloud. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on peer list. Um, you can also reach out to me on our Slack channel. Uh, if you go to the website, we have a link. Uh, it's an, it's actually the invite link. So you just click on that and you'll get an invitation to the, uh, Slack channel itself. And you can go from there and join in for the discussion. We we're up to about six people now, I think. So we're slowly growing. Um, not a lot of discussions yet, but I mean, by all means, if you guys have comments on any of the podcasts, or if you have different ideas and you want to share uh, stuff about how you would handle disaster recovery in the cloud, for example, stop on by. Stop on by the Slack channel, share your thoughts. You know, if you have ideas for future shows and you say, you know what, it would be really nice if you could talk about this. Stop by, you know, drop a line. I'm almost always online with Slack, either because I'm sitting by my computer or because I have my phone with me. You know, if you send a notification, I'll get it. Uh, and yeah, let's, let's grow this community a bit. Let's, let's chat about cloud security. Let's talk about, you know, all things cloud, be it disaster recovery, be it, uh, really corny cloud jokes. I don't know. Um, I don't have any with me right now, but maybe that'll be something that we'll do in the future as, as, as we sign off. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll tell a corny cloud joke. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how that pans out. Anyway, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, stay safe and have a great week.